The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible or in your own Bible or in your app, phone, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, where we've been in this study for a while in Corinthians, and we're almost done. We're going to finish uh, right around Easter, and then we're going to do a sermon series on how Jesus makes a disciple, case study, Simon Peter. And we're going to look at Jesus' encounters, Jesus' encounters with Simon Peter after Easter. But Today we're giving our attention to 1 Corinthians 15, and this is the passage that doesn't get preached. So if you listen to sermons on 1 Corinthians, you typically don't hear one from 35 to 49, because it's exceedingly hard to explain. Um, And we're going to get into that. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been lost? How many have been lost before? I mean, like, really lost. Now, it's one thing to be lost, but how about the sun is going down? and you're walking in the woods, and now you're getting lost. Has anybody had that pleasant encounter before? Well, I had that pleasant encounter with my son, and uh, he didn't know I was gonna review this story with him, but we were with my grandparents' house, and we, Kim's grandparents, and they just, we just walked down to the lake. It's probably about 10 acre walk, not that far. And he left us down at the lake thinking they can make it back to the house, no problem. So my grandfather cruised on back with the, with the girls, and Haddon and I were down there, and, and when it came time to head back, I thought, well, we'll just head in a certain direction, we'll be good. And it started getting a little darker in, into the woods, and we weren't seeing the house, and I kept thinking, it's a general direction up there, and we were cruising on up, and at one point, Haddon, I think he was probably like seven or eight at the time, he said, Dad, we're lost and you don't know where you're going. (laughs) That was a pretty good summary of uh, where we were at. And uh, I was starting to get a little nervous, a little concerned. And uh, finally, we saw a light, and it was somebody else's house, but it got us out to a street where we could get our bearings and make it back to the grandparents. And I told him, before we went into the house, I said, Haddon, don't make a big deal about this. when we go in, okay, you know, just, just play it cool or whatever. And as soon as he walked in, he said, Dad got us totally lost. <laughs> well, maybe that's a little bit of how you feel this morning, is that you're lost, and you feel like the sun is going down. And when the sun starts to go down, you actually have diminishing returns on finding your way, because it gets harder as it gets darker. And as it gets darker, you start to feel more of a panic of how am I gonna get out of this bind? And things are getting darker and darker for humanity and Jesus Christ broke into this world in the darkness of night and the Bible speaks of Christ coming as the light of the world. And he's come and taken humanity with him as C.S. Lewis describes this great illustration of a diver going down deep and deeper still, and deeper still, into the grime, into the bottom, into the depths. And he comes out with his precious jewel up from, and Jesus comes up with his jewel 
and it's his church, it's his bride. And he's winning this victory now over death as he's triumphed over the grave. And so hear this good news this morning. This is truly good news. 1 Corinthians 15, picking up at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthy is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of, of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. This is a difficult passage to understand, but we pray that, Lord, you would illuminate this text, that we would not only understand it, but that we would glory in it, and that it would be a treasure to us. And ask that you would speak now, and may your servants be listening. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in case you're wondering what we're talking about this morning, <laughs> this is a difficult text. The theological category is glorification. Glorification. So in the Christian life, we talk about, you know, sometimes the order of salvation. Maybe you've heard some of that terminology before. And Romans talks about the idea that God calls people, and those he calls, he justifies. And those he justifies, he glorifies. And glorification probably doesn't get talked about as much as it should in the church, but Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, he, he defines glorification this way. It's pretty simple, easy to follow. Glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died, reunites them with their souls, changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. That's what we're talking about this morning. Glory. What will become of us? Glory. Well, 
the Corinthians weren't convinced of this glory, were they? They raised two questions in 30, verse 35, and both of them kind of are stemming from their doubts. Are you serious? How can the dead be raised? Like, what, what kind of body do they have? Like, dead men don't rise. And if this body is all there is, all I see is corruption, decay, weakness, arthritis, aging, struggle, fatigue, and ultimately, death. Maybe some of you, did any of you do the 10-year challenge on Facebook? You know, where you did the 2009 to 2019, and people were, you guys are looking at me like I'm strange. (laughs) Did anybody do this, where you post a picture of what you look like 10 years ago? and you get the idea of how much you've aged in 10 years, okay? And, and you start seeing these people from 10 years ago like, wow, we change. And it's usually not for the good as we get older, okay? Except for Aunt May, the Spider-Man from the first one to the second one. That was kind of a humorous uh, meme that went around. But most of us don't have the Aunt May experience from the, the Spider-Man, okay? It, it, we go from... We're decaying, okay? And the idea here is the Corinthians were like, they didn't get what Paul was talking about because they thought that this this same body, that they were looking at more the continuity rather than the discontinuity. And what Paul is trying to show them is both the continuity and the discontinuity, meaning you will have the same body, but it's going to be radically different. And we're going to talk about that. So first of all, um, the harvest. We talked about the harvest a couple weeks ago, and Jesus is introduced in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15 as the first fruits. And we talked about in an agrarian society, in a, in a culture that absolutely depends on your crops, the first fruits was really important. And Jesus being the first fruits is, is a guarantee. It's an assurance that the, that the crop is coming. And when Jesus is raised, he's the first fruits of all who are to follow, which would be all who trust in him and are united to him. And so that good news of the harvest is also picked up again in verse 33, but this time the imagery now has the metaphor of a seed. So hence the title of the sermon is the story of the seed. This metaphor runs throughout the, this whole verses from 35 to 49, and six times the word sow or sown is used. So the idea is that the seed goes into the ground, just as Jesus says, that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it bears no fruit, but if it dies, it bears much fruit, John 12, 24. So the idea here is that your body is the seed. It has to go down into the ground. It has to decompose. It has to die. And then it's going to be raised something glorious. That's the picture, the imagery that Paul is giving here. And so this is kind of the key theme, is there's continuity with our present bodies, but there's also discontinuity. And so the idea here is that The stress is more of what Paul's getting at is more on the discontinuity of how radically we are going to be changed. And just as you see when a seed goes into the ground, it looks radically different after it comes out, right? And I'm not a scientist, but my understanding is there's there's a molecular continuity between a seed and the plant. But Paul is making 
his emphasis here on what we're going to be looking forward to with our bodies. The seed decomposes and then it rises again and there's a different form. Well, this is what Paul is getting at. So keep in mind, what Paul is guarding against is two errors, two extremes. The one would be to say that your resurrection body will be just like your present body. You would be missing what Paul is saying in these verses, that what is sown is perishable, what's raised is imperishable. What is sown is in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, raised in power. That's discontinuity. So if you think it's the same exact body that you have now, you don't have a whole lot to look forward to. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. So the one mistake would be to say that, uh, you know, to overemphasize the one, but the other would be to say that your body, it's completely different. When the reality is people are going to recognize you and you're going to recognize them. And it will be the same body, but it will be changed. So Paul's point, this is a difficult passage, verses 37 to 41, he talks about different types of flesh. And he uses the word four times about flesh in the original language that is, isn't mentioned in this ESV account here. But the idea is that God gives different types of flesh. He gives Human flesh differs from the difference of animal flesh. And furthermore, then he talks about sun, moon, and stars, and each have a different splendor, and each has a glory of its own, and stars differ from different stars in splendor, and some are brighter than others. The big idea here is that God is not going to be caught by some design problem relating to the resurrection and fitting us for heaven. Just as he's created these different types of, of bodies or flesh, some for animals, and different type of glory for the different stars. He will take care of us in making us different than the glory that we have now. And so he says in verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthy is another. You see, in Adam, Adam and Eve, first parents, first created beings, we are connected to the first Adam and therefore we have an earthly body. But the last Adam is from heaven and he gives us a glorified body that fits us for heaven. We're going to come back to that. But just in clearing some of the debris here, if some of you have been caught up or read any stuff from Mormon theology, they they kind of run rampant on this that they talk about the sun, moon, and stars, and they speak of different kinds of resurrection bodies. I don't think that that's what Paul is trying to argue here. Paul's point is to show that God can create different kinds of physical entities in general as he's the master designer, and he'll have no problem giving us a glorified body so that we can dwell in a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3. And the only place we, the only way we can dwell in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells is to have a new glorified body that can dwell there without sin. And so what Paul is saying is God's created all kinds of bodies, all kinds of flesh. Each is fit for its environment. The animal for the land, the bird for the air, the fish for the sea. God's the ultimate creator of bodies and flesh for their environment. 
Seeing this variety that is visible and noticeable should lead us to believe that God is more than capable of creating a human glorified fleshly body that's different in quality and, and yet similar to our present earthly bodies. So are you getting this? Paul is using this analogy here of a seed that sprouts into something that looks completely different than it originally did to describe a human body that dies. The seed undergoes a burial and later is transformed. The DNA is the same, but there's transformation. One of the songs we sing in the church is, O love that will not let me go. And the last verse says what? I lay in dust, life's glory dead, but from the ground there blossoms red, life that it shall endless be. Amen. And so as we consider this continuity and discontinuity for a minute, first of all, let me just stress the continuity that Paul speaks here of a seed. And the idea here is that if you plant an apple if you plant an apple seed, what are you going to get? You're going to get an apple tree, right? And if you plant, if you, you know, you're not going to get a banana tree. You're not going to get an orange tree. And if you plant a watermelon seed, what, are you gonna, what kind of plant are you going to get? You're going to get watermelon. You're not going to get zucchini or squash. So when you die, it will be your body that's raised, not somebody else's. There's continuity. Paul said, he who raised Christ from the dead, this is Romans 8, 11, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies, also through his spirit which dwells in you. Philippians 3.21, he said that Jesus will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body. It's our body that gets changed. That's the continuity. And we get our, our cues on that in looking at Jesus. And that's why we read those passages this morning of how Jesus is in this glorified body. He's in this resurrected body. He still apparently had scars. Somehow they're healed. The believers recognize him. So there's continuity between his crucified body and his glorified body. But he's also able to change his appearance or vanish from their sight or walk through walls and, and pass through locked doors. And yet then he eats fish and honey and says he's not a spirit. And he invited the disciples to feel him. It was the same body, yet it was a different body, a glorified body. And yet we know that there's also great discontinuity. And this is good news for us as we recognize we're in this body that ultimately is failing us. At some point in our life, those of you that are into exercise, and if you're in the D.C. area, you're into exercise because we're one of the most fit cities in America. Did you know that? D.C. has one of the most, and if you get near the airport and you just watch all the people, it's like Exercise City. It's kind of cool to watch all the people running and biking. Be careful, you might get run over. And they move pretty fast. And uh, we've had a few encounters years ago, and we did a few of those bike trips uh, down in D.C. Won't tell any of those stories today. But, um, but the idea here is at some point in your life, you will reach the end of your PRs. There'll be a point where there's no more personal records. Those will have all been in the past. Because at some point, your body begins to, you're on, the, you're, on the, you're on the downward slope. That happens to all of us. The good news here, though, is that what Paul is saying is what is sown is a perishable, 
perishable body, but it will be raised imperishable, impossible to die. It's sown in dishonor, verse 43, but it will be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. We are weak, but it will be raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it'll be raised a spiritual body. It's sown bearing the likeness of the first Adam, but it will be raised bearing the likeness of the last Adam. And so what will this resurrection body be like? Well, it's going to be a lot like Jesus' resurrected body. I think we draw our clues from him. And so this life is full of corruption. We're told to dust you are and to dust you shall return. Martha looked it into the grave and she told Jesus, Jesus, Lazarus, it's been four days by... He stinketh. And corruption, of course, is accelerated in the grave. But in this life, we all experience this idea that our bones weaken, our muscles weaken, and we live in this environment of corruption. But the future isn't going to be corrupt at all. Listen to what uh, Peter says. He says, "We we have an inheritance that's incorruptible. It's undefiled that can't fade away and it's reserved in heaven for us. You remember what Jesus said to the disciples when he asked them to pray for an hour? What did he say to them when he found them sleeping? The flesh is willing, but the body is weak. Someday that won't be true. Someday that won't be true. It will be the flesh is willing and the body is strong. But in this life, I know nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh, Paul says. I desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. The good I don't want to do, I do. And the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do, do, do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin dwells within me. So I find this law to be at work. Whenever I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And so as Paul is wrestling with this, he cries out and offers up a prayer. And what does he say? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to deliver this body from death? What's the answer? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so since this is true, nobody arrives in this life. And that's how this epistle actually or this chapter actually ends as Paul actually takes up the idea what about the people that are still alive and the Lord comes back what happens to them do they just get the ticket right on up what does he tell them he says I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep meaning we will not all die verse 51 but we shall all be changed and in a moment In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed, for the perishable must put on the imperishable, and so on. So what he's saying is, he says in verse 50, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, meaning not in your present state. How long will it take God to glorify us? What does he say? Well, let's try it. Let's, we're going to do a test. You ready? We're going to do a blinking test. When I say three, we're all going to blink together as a congregation. One, two, three. That was it. That's how long it will take. In the twinkling of an eye. And guess what that word means? Blink. 
in the blink, these people that are left on earth, when the Lord returns, will instantly, in a twink, in a blink, not a twink, a blink, (laughs) they will instantly be glorified, just like that. They will be changed. Their flesh will be willing, and their body will be strong. And they will never be able to sin again. But in this life, you don't get your best life now. If you're hearing a prosperity gospel that says your best life now, that's all about health and wealth now, where is that in the New Testament? This life is fleeting. And health and wealth may come for a time, but in an instant, it's gone. And when one of these rich people died, I think it was Rockefeller or Carnegie, they asked, how much did he leave? And the answer was, all of it. You leave it all behind. It's all gone like that. But the good news is that Christ will glorify us at his return. We will instantly be changed. And this resurrection is not the recitation of a corpse. What is mortal will be changed by the power of God so that we are, when we are raised, we are given a body that is now fit for our heavenly environment. And so there's nothing honorable in this life when we see death. We weren't built for this. When we see a decaying body or we see a loved one that has died, this is sad and it very much grieves us. But it's passages like this that give us hope that what Paul is talking about here is not a Lazarus resurrection. Lazarus was raised only to die again. This is a Jesus resurrection. Raised and you will never die again. The Bible says our citizenship is in heaven and from it is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. One commentator says as humans we were dressed at birth in the clothing of the man of dust Adam so Christians will put on the clothing of the heavenly man in the resurrection. Matthew 13 says the Son of Man, this is sobering, he says, will send his angels and they'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and he'll throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the bad news. The good news is then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. They tried to trick Jesus with a question, if you remember in Luke 20, and they, they proposed this hypothetical scenario about seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died, and afterward the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, Jesus, whose life will this woman be? For the, for the seven had her as wife. So they posed this question to Jesus. What did Jesus say? He said this, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. They are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. 
but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the book, about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. They cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology uh, on this section, he has something, I'll read this, a little longer paragraph, but just take this in and let, let this cause you to, to ruminate in your imagination. Because it's, I think our glorification is a lot greater than we've thought about. Paul also says our bodies will be raised in glory. When this is contrasted with dishonor, as it is here, there's a suggestion of the beauty or the attractiveness or appearance that our bodies will have. They will no longer be dishonorable or unattractive, but they will look glorious in their beauty. Moreover, because the word glory is so frequently used in scripture of the bright shining radiance that surrounds the presence of God himself, this term suggests that there will also be a kind of brightness or radiance surrounding our bodies that will be an appropriate outward evidence of the position of exaltation and rule over all creation that God has given to us. This is also suggested in Matthew 13, 43, where Jesus says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Similarly, we read in Daniel's vision, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those shall turn many, those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, both of these statements might possibly be understood metaphorically, and in that case, they would not indicate that an actual brightness or radiance will surround our resurrection bodies. But there's no reason in the context of either of them that would cause us to see them as metaphorical. And other pieces of evidence argue against doing so. The hints of the age to come that they were shining, that they were seen shining in the glory of God from the face of Moses. And in a much greater way, the brighter light that shone from heaven from Jesus at the transfiguration. Together with the fact that we will bear the image of Christ and be like him, combined to suggest there will actually be a visual, visible brightness or radiance that surrounds us when we are in our resurrected bodies. Have you thought about that? You say, well, what does this passage have to do with me? Everything. The Bible says in Romans 8, I was just reading through Romans, and I just got, sometimes you just get stopped on a verse, and it's just like, full-on breaks, all four disc breaks come to a halt. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's what the creation is all waiting for, is for us to have this bright glory glorified bodies. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We will have bodies, resurrected bodies. And Paul has this connection to Jesus. And we get this. What was it that Neil Armstrong said? I was in the womb. 
I wasn't quite here yet. I was here, but I wasn't here. But in 1969, but what did he say when he landed on the moon? He said, that's one small step for man. And he kind of messed it up a little bit. But, and then he said, it's one giant leap for mankind. We get that. We love the connection. Because Neil Armstrong was there, we know that a man has been on the moon. And mankind has made it to the moon. And we get that. We're connected. Thankfully, he didn't say, this is one giant step for America. Are we glad he didn't say that? Boy, that would have caused the ruckus. He said, for, for mankind, we've made it to the moon. We get that connection. Well, Jesus has done something better than going to the moon. He's come back from the dead. And, the, and, and this is our great, we, we, we all lose to the grave. All of our ancestors have lost to the grave. The grave always wins. It's always won. It's always mocked us. It wins and it wins and it wins and it wins. Every time, it's always won, except for one. Well, there's one or two others that somehow made it out like Elijah. But, but Jesus, now they actually didn't go into the grave, but Jesus comes and comes out of the grave. Fully God, fully man, the last Adam. He is raised from the dead. And now we are told that he will give life to your mortal bodies in the same way. That we too will rise. And we will mock the grave. We will dance on the very grave. These very graveyards, when you go by them, resurrection fields, resurrection fields, resurrection fields. My grandparents are right next to each other in Frederick, right across from the Key Stadium. They're coming out together, and they're going up together. Right there, resurrection fields. These aren't just cemeteries. They are now, but they won't be. And someday they, we will mock them. Flannery O'Connor said this, she said, for me, it is the virgin birth, the incarnation, Jesus becoming a human being, the resurrection, which are the true laws of the flesh and the physical. Those are the true laws. Death, decay, and destruction, that's the suspension of those laws. But the reality is because those who are tied to Christ, just as, as, as certain as Adam represents you to the grave, Jesus represents you out of that grave. And just as you bear the image of Adam, you bear the image of the heavenly, of Jesus. George Herbert, great poet, said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. You see, this is great news for us. Jesus, the glorious one, left his glory, he experienced dishonor so that the dishonorable might experience glory. Jesus, the powerful one, became weak, so the weak might become powerful. Jesus, who deserved life, experienced death, our death, so that those who deserve death might experience new life. Jesus comes from heaven, takes on flesh, so that he could take flesh to heaven. The first Adam was a recipient of life. The last Adam is a dispenser of life. He's a life-giving spirit. 
And in the new creation, the resurrection of Jesus stands now as the point of origin in regard to the new spirit-constituted and directed resurrection body. And so my question to you this morning is, who represents you? Who has the final word and the final say? You're either represented by Adam or the second Adam. The first Adam died and so do all his offspring. But the last Adam rose from the dead and those connected to him by faith, by believing in what he has done, they will rise to eternal life. We sing every Easter. We sing, Christ the Lord is risen today. And one of the verses says, Soar we now where Christ hath led. Hallelujah. Following our exalted head. Hallelujah. Made like him, like him we rise. Hallelujah. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray.